Welcome to Lydia Finette's Claim Your Confidence, a podcast that will introduce you to the most powerful women in the world as they talk about their own confidence journey. No matter what obstacles you face, Claim Your Confidence will inspire you, motivate you, and give you a roadmap to live the life you want. So, are you ready to claim your confidence? Hi, everyone, and welcome to Claim Your Confidence. I'm Lydia Finette, and I am so thrilled to have my guest today. Glenn Close is one of the most famous actresses in the world. She is joining us in Newsstand Studios. But first, a word from our sponsors. Glenn, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to see you. I could not be more excited to have you here today. For everyone who's listening, I know that Glenn Close needs no introduction. Her career as an actress has spanned over four decades. She has won more awards than I even have time to list, including SAG Awards, multiple Emmys, Critics, Tony Awards, and multiple Golden Globes. She was named one of Time Magazine's most famous women in the world, and it is such an honor to have her here today. I want to tell a quick story to our listeners, Glenn, if you don't mind, about the first time we met, and I'm pretty sure that you've never heard this story either. Glenn and I were introduced through our mutual friend, Toby Usnick, who at the time was running the public relations team at Christie's. He had a friend who'd asked him to talk to Glenn because she was starting a nonprofit charity auction. So Toby naturally called me. And so... Toby and I agreed to meet Glenn at his apartment, but at the time I was watching Damages, which if you have never seen this show, I hope that you will pause this podcast and go ahead and binge watch the entire thing start to finish. It is one of the most incredible shows that I have seen on TV to date, and it really was before TV had the kind of top-tier actresses that they do today. Glenn Close plays a role as Patty Hughes in this show where she is so incredibly frightening in her character, so intense, but also so calm. It's very, very, very creepy. And we went to Toby's apartment, and I remember sitting on the couch, looking at Glenn Close, just thinking to myself, oh my gosh, she's so nice and warm and lovely. Is there any Patty Hughes in her? I can tell you, honestly, after having known her for many years, that that is not the case at all. Glenn is a remarkable human being on every level. She's also an incredible advocate for the mental health community. But I want to start at the beginning of your story, because this is always about the guest's confidence journey. So I would love to know a little bit about Glenn Close as a child. Who were you growing up? I grew up in the Connecticut countryside. We could have been in Iowa as far as I was concerned. <laughs> I was very lucky to be to grow up on my grandfather's farm in backcountry Greenwich, believe it or not. And my parents lived in this little stone cottage that was at one time a slaughterhouse, I think. Oh, <laughs> Hope they waited to tell but, you that until you were a little older. Yeah, I have wonderful <laughs> memories of that house, of that whole landscape. My dad was a doctor student at Columbia at the time. I really was an introvert from the very beginning. I was incredibly shy outside of my family. But even inside my family, I could spend hours just playing by myself and... I had a Noah's Ark that I would play with all the time. I had all kinds of different animals. And 
my sister Tina, who's 21 months older than me, she was the gang leader. It was Billy and Dougie <laughs> Wagner and Tina and me. How many children then? How many were you? Eventually four of us. Four of yeah. us. Yeah. Three girls and a boy. Uh, my brother came right after me. And then Jesse's my youngest sister and Tina's my oldest sibling. So the memory of my childhood was just roving, playing games and being a cowboy in that wonderful landscape of fields and woods and streams. And my dad would bring home dogs from the New York streets that he would rescue from. They used to experiment on dogs, believe it or not. Yeah. So we had this motley crew of dogs and a collie. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of everything. You know, it was really kind of magical. Yeah. But I was not with my family, but outside my family, I was very, very shy. Very shy. And when you saw your older sister as the gang leader, did that appeal to you as a young child? Did you look at her and think, that's what I want to be like? Or were you just sort of more in awe of I her? had no choice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think my younger sister might say the I same thing. I was your sidekick. <laughs> we loved Hopalong Cassie. This is how old we are. Loved Hopalong <laughs> Cassie. But I played Lucky, who I thought was really handsome. <laughs> Tina got the little Shetland pony, Brownie, and she would ride Brownie, and I would gallop beside her. So from the waist down, I was a horse, and from the waist up, I was Lucky. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And so you lived in Connecticut until you were how old? Well, it got very complicated. When I was seven, my parents met a group. It was a cult group, really, called Moral Rearmament, and they were sucked up by them. They always were incredibly altruistic. They had gotten married when they were 18. Dad had gone off to the war, came back different, went into yeah. medical school. They were having a rocky time in their marriage. And they were just fodder for these people who said, come with us, follow our tenants, and you can change the world. So they sold everything. We moved into my grandmother Close's house, not terribly far away, and then they sold that. And from that time on, we lived in uh, centers. And how did that change you? And if you were an introverted child at that point, did that make you more introverted? Or did you find a voice in that situation? Not really. Yeah. My sister Tina, as we grew up, was more of a rebel. My sister Jessie was too young. Mm. And Sandy was kind of, you know, he was naughty. <laughs> we lived in this big, for two years, uh, they had a big uh, hotel in Switzerland that was up the mountain from Montreux, Lake Geneva, and Tina would raid the... <laughs> the huge refrigerator at night. And, as the gang leader. <laughs> yeah, well, no, she would do that as herself. Sandy would do, you know, very, very naughty things. But I was always the little soldier. I wanted to fit in. Yeah. And so is that when theater or acting came to you? I mean, was it trying to become someone else in this landscape that didn't look like what you wanted it to look like. I feel like you've always played parts with such depth, and I'm sure that's a well you could draw from having had that experience at an early age. Yeah, I didn't get out of it till I was 22. So oh, yeah. I had a very skewed toolbox, shall we yeah. say, very empty Indeed. and skewed for whatever was in it. Even during that time, and then also as before we went over to Switzerland for those, we were allowed to watch Disney movies. And so even the cartoons or the, you know, the incredible 
animated features. They just captured my imagination. And I loved fairy tales. would mm -hmm. imagine myself as a little match girl or the prince who, what is the name of that one? It's, it's really, a, it's probably a grim fairy tale. A bird comes and picks out all the jewels that's in the statue of the prince and they melt him down because he's ugly now and his heart won't melt. I mean, things like that just yeah. really, really were very much in my sensibility. And and I live very much in my head and I would pretend. I mean, we grew up running around the Connecticut countryside pretending and I think becoming an actor was just a natural progression from that. From that. So yeah. you went to college of William and Mary, is that correct? Yes. And so that's where theater really became a more structured part of your life, perhaps? Or was it something that you'd done before that? Well, I was in a group called Up With People, which is, I used to never, ever, ever, ever talk about it because it was rough. It was the youth kind of branch of moral rearmament so i was still under that control maybe control yeah yeah it went into a youth thing and i because i had grown up in moral rearmament and then segued into up with people and i you know i put off going to theater school of course nobody really wanted me to do that so we traveled around the world for five years in a wow. bus and whatever i mean mostly around this country and it was segregated you had girls buses and boys buses and we had outfits that we would wear traveling outfits and then we of course had outfits when we gave the show but i remember we went to a lot of college campuses mm -hmm. in the 60s late 60s and there was vietnam and there was all these student unrest and mm -hmm. We'd get out of our bus and we'd go into the student center and we'd set up our microphones and we'd sing our songs and try to recruit people. But I never did that. I, was, I couldn't do that. <laughs> you were really there for but the performing part. I remember part. <laughs> I wanted to go to Million, William & Mary because when we, when we ran off our bus and went into the student uh, union, the kids were so skeptical. I, I just remember thinking, what? What is this? You know, who are they? Who do they? And I thought, I want to come back here. <laughs> this is a place for me. But I, I didn't know how to get out of it. I didn't have any tools to get out. I finally, finally uh, confronted the leaders, this couple, and I said, I want to go to college. And um, they didn't want me to. I had to just quit. So with really no encouragement or anything, I ended up going to William & Mary. That must have been an incredible moment in your own life if you've had someone who's controlled you for that long and you're obviously with your parents who you trust to set the path for you, but then to be confident enough in yourself to say, I don't want to do this anymore and go in a different direction at an early age. I mean, that's an incredible amount of bravery that it must have taken because I'm sure that to you, there were a lot of conflicting emotions in that moment of, especially as an introvert, of not pleasing someone. Well, I had, it's not something I actually talk about a lot at all, but I really had to set up marriage. This guy, you didn't do anything unless the leader said you could, right? So yeah. I had written songs with a guy who was one of the, he was the lead guitarist and the, I think he was the original or, or almost the original up with people he was a wonderful 
really talented guitarist from actually Nashville, and I had a huge crush on him. And um, he got permission. Oh, after I asked to leave, funnily enough, he asked me to marry him. And huh. I hadn't done anything. I, I don't know if I'd even kiss somebody. So it was not <laughs> normal. <laughs> um, so when I went to college, I went to college with a husband, and we lived off campus, but that only lasted for two years. Wow. And so college was where you found theater then? I walked straight into the theater department in Five Eight Kappa Hall and got a part in the first play they were doing that year, which was uh, Twelfth Night. Shakespeare's and then you were hooked. Was that it? Absolutely. I, I was already on. hooked. You know, yeah. I mean, I just knew that I was very directed. I just knew that's what I wanted to do, and it was lucky because at that point, the theater department at William and Mary had a triumvirate of wonderful professors. Harold Scammon had been schooled at Northwestern and really taught me how to speak and how to make my speaking voice have a, have range bigger range mm-hmm. of my speaking voice and then there was the technical guy and the sound guy and you had to if you were majoring in theater uh, you had to do everything so you'd be a star in one of the plays and then you'd be backstage painting scenery in another one it was really good <laughs> and from kids from all over campus that's what I loved about it it was a very very fine and it still is it's a great school a great liberal arts school and then after college since theater was obviously in your blood, do they then help you? I mean, what does that look like? Because I always wonder when you find theater and you love it, how do you leave college and then all of a sudden start a career? Is it as easy as just moving somewhere and and starting to go to auditions? Or what does that process look like? I'd heard of two national auditions, URTA, which is University Resident Theater Association, and TCG Theater Communications Group. And they had uh, regional auditions and then if you pass, you got to national. And I think it was TCG that I got to national. And I didn't, I mean, I did Hecuba from Children Women, which is insane because <laughs> she's like 80 years old. And um, from that, I got my first uh, job with the Phoenix Theater Company that had a season on Broadway. And that was that your first time in New York? Yeah, as, a, as an adult, yeah. And I was hired to be an understudy, to understudy the lead in the three plays they were doing and have a little part in each. Did you love it from the minute you walked on that stage? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I bet you got hooked very easily. So I saw you in Sunset Boulevard when you were doing that, I can't remember, five or six years ago in New York. And one thing that I've always thought was interesting, and I've seen this as a charity auctioneer, that there are a lot of actors and actresses who are amazing on film but actually hate being on stage. This has happened to me. They're like, oh, I'm very nervous in front of a microphone on stage in front of people. And I've always thought that was so funny. And I remember seeing you during Sunset Boulevard because I had only ever seen you on a movie and just thinking how naturally you moved around the stage. The stage was so much your stage and there were all Mm. of the other actors and actresses on it. But when you were on the stage, there was no one else on the stage in many ways. And I would also be interested in understanding once you started that theater path, what did that look like for you? So you get to Broadway in New York, but then how do you go from Broadway to movies? Oh, it was six years before I did my first movie. You know, I did various plays. I did some regional rep companies out in Milwaukee I went and I did Yale rep and 
where else did I go? Some on and off Broadway plays. And it was when I was in Barnum mm -hmm. that George Roy Hill, who was casting The World According to Garp, he saw me. I was playing Charity Barnum, the rather, I mean, let's just say everyone else was dressed in multicolors and I was dressed in gray. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Here I am, the introvert. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And so I got the part after auditioning for George, which he said was one of the worst auditions he ever, <laughs> he ever saw. <laughs> <laughs> Got to start somewhere. <laughs> well, they had sent out to all the agents that they were looking for a young Catherine Hepburn type. So I went in and just kind of mimic Catherine Hepburn. It was not pretty good. <laughs> but I guess I was good enough to have a call back and get cast. Was that the most exciting day post just starting theater in general? Was it exciting well, to make the that thing transition? A, yeah, I mean... You have to be incredibly resilient in my profession. It's It yes. can be very cruel, very hard, and it's certainly incredibly competitive. Mm. So you have to not be defeated by rejection. With me, though, if I went in and I kept that edge before I kind of learned how to audition, I would work myself up to this point. And, and if I went in and I was there, I usually got cast. But if I did something that I thought wasn't my best, I would try my damnedest to go back. That was really hard for me to know that they hadn't seen me at my best, that that was hard. Um, yeah. Sometimes you have another chance. And, you know, I went back for one musical and got cast, not as the part that I originally went into, but I got cast in it. So that was just saying, can I please try again? Because I think you didn't see my best. So I... I I was, I had this crazy engine and I think you have to have this engine that just keeps you going through all the rejection and at the same time you have to try to keep a objectivity about where you are and uh, what you need to learn and just soak in everything you can. Yeah. Was there ever a part that you thought that you should get that you didn't get that you still look back on and think, not that the other actress didn't do a good job, but that you just wish you had gotten along the way? Yeah, I guess one of the things that I would have loved to have played was the role of Diane Fossey in Gorillas in the Mist. Sigourney Weaver did an incredible job. Uh, but at the time, my father was in the Congo, and I visited the Congo, and I felt I really knew that country, and I would have loved to have got a whack at that one. But you, yeah. know, you have got to let all that go, or else you, you must drive yourself nuts. <laughs> <laughs> it must be so hard day after day, and it's something that we talk a lot about with the guests or I talk a lot about with the guests on this podcast because rejection really is such a huge part of becoming more confident over mm -hmm. the course of your life. And oftentimes the things that you think are literally bringing you to your knees are the things that you can look back on and think, wow, I'm able to do more because I have been through that. And I imagine as an actress, because rejection is pretty much part of every single audition at some point, I should think, over the course of your life, whether you get the right part, whether you don't get that part. I mean, that must be almost like, especially when you're starting out, I'm not talking about now, obviously, but mm. when you're first starting out, I'm sure if you're auditioning a lot and you're just constantly hearing that rejection, is there any advice you can give to our listeners about what you might say to yourself or what you would say to them about that? Well, I mean, truly, if I thought I'd done my best, I could walk away. Yeah. Because obviously they didn't want my best. They were looking for something else. Right, um, right. Oh, and also, it's really not a good idea to read, you know, the critics sometimes, especially right. in theater, because you have to go out the next day. 
So um, <laughs> never thought about that, but that's well, very learned, true. I learned to do that. Um, yeah, people don't know what's gone into the, the show. And yeah, my very first job on that Love for Love, this wonderful English actress Jeanette uh, Landis, she said to me, "Never compare your career to anyone else's." Good advice. Because you will either think you're ahead or behind, and it's a total waste of energy. And I've thought about that a lot, and I think it's incredibly true. You have to own your choices. And you choose something, at least in my profession, you choose something that hopefully is on the page, the words are on the page, and they inspire you, and they think that will be a good creative process to bring that character to light. I think a lot of people don't think about the fact that they have to own their choices over the course of their life. And they think that everything is around them is what's happening to them and that they don't have control over it, which truly is the only way you can live a confident life if you believe that no matter what happens to you, you can still move forward and put one foot in front of the other, even if it is hard. Yeah, I mean, think, especially in my profession, I was lucky to get a job, you know, out of the gate. And Mm -hmm. then it's just, you just prove yourself with each job, you prove yourself. Uh, it's the work that counts. That's all that counts to me. It's just the work. And you yeah. learn from observing others and everything like that. But, you know, I get a very strong instinct of what I think is good, what I think is good. And I usually will do it. I want it to be good, but I also want it to be an expansive, creative experience. I don't want to go over old territory. You come to a point where you see, you know, your choices are beginning to add up. And then you think, well, this is my career. This is what it's going to be. Um, mm-hmm. There's something actually satisfying about being able to settle into that. And the minute you start comparing yourself, yeah, you're down that horrible rabbit hole. So, But it's very hard not to. Um, yeah. You just have to think, this is my life. And these are the choices I've made. And hopefully, by the end of it all, they'll add up to something that's been positive for the world. I love the quote, comparison is the thief of joy, because it's so true. You know, if you can be so happy in your own life and you look to the left and all of a sudden you're like, wait, they're doing something else. But yeah, right. I, I think Why that's a really I doing it. Yeah, that doesn't really make sense. But you have had these incredible moments in your career. And I know one of them came pretty early on, probably not for you because you were doing so many films, but with Fatal Attraction, oh, which yeah. obviously was the movie that really put you on the international scene and Mm. made your name not just a name, but a name that was known to everybody. I wonder about fame. I always think about this as it pertains to being famous when all of a sudden you, Glenn Close, this warm, kind person, become Glenn Close, the famous actress. And I can say when we had dinner one night also with Toby and our, our friends from the Village Den, the Beatrice Inn, I'll never forget this. This lovely waiter came over and put down the bread basket and you turned to the left and he saw you and you saw him and he went, oh my God. And it was so funny because we were just having dinner with Glenn and it was just such a funny moment. And I remember thinking, and I said to Toby later, Glenn will never think about that dinner Perhaps except to say, once I went to the Beatrice Inn with my friends for dinner, and there was a lovely man who waited on us, and he will tell that story for the rest of his life. (laughs) And I wonder what it's like to be famous like that, to have people who are coming at you with these ideas and thoughts about who you are, and then for you to know who you are on the inside. What does it take to be yourself in a world of people coming at you with expectations of who you are and what you should do and, and what you are to them? Well, to tell you the truth, um, I don't think about it much. Yeah. And I live in Montana. 
Yeah. I've never now. lived in Hollywood. Yeah. I still in many ways think of myself as an outsider. I think having been in that cult from 7 to 22 where you aren't allowed to do a lot of things and you literally feel like you're looking in the window, you know, from the outside, I think that's so deep in me that I don't think that will ever go away. Yeah. Um, and added to that my being an introvert, which for me is, that was a big step to realize this is who you are and it's okay. Mm-hmm. It's okay. You don't have to force yourself to go into things that make you uncomfortable and it, you don't have to do it. You know, that yeah. was a big, that was a big realization. When people come up to me, unless they're obnoxious and very, 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 very seldom does that ever happen. I'm always incredibly gratified and grateful that my work has meant something to them. Yeah. And I'm sure so many people would say that it it has, because you also have this amazing ability to talk about things that become cultural issues on a mainstream years before they do. And I say that in reference to the Albert Knobs transgender role that you played years before the entire world was really talking about this. And you said in an interview that I read that you did it because you thought people should be aware and should be talking about that. And I wonder where that comes from, because this isn't the first time you do this. You do this with Bring Change to Mind, too. But I would like to go back to that comment. Well, that character, I loved that character. I did a version of that. It was originally a play. Well, first of all, it was a short story by George Moore, a uh, Anglo-Irish writer. And then it was adapted for the stage by Simone Ben Moussa in Paris and London. And I did the version in New York. What I loved about that character is that she, number one, she was a total innocent. And number two, she was hiding in plain sight in order mm-hmm. to survive. And I think that's the story of a lot of people, especially trans people. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a matter of how to survive. But her innocence is what really got to me because she doesn't really know what she is or who mm-hmm. she is. I mean, people can put on that character that she's trans or she's a lesbian, but she was, if anything, asexual because she had never known anything but violent. In the movie version, her stories that she had been raped, and that was the only time that she had had any kind of sexual experience, and she'd never been touched with love, by love. So she's seeking something that she knows nothing about though she feels in her soul that she needs it. And it's such an incredibly profound performance on so many levels, which I think is what is such an incredible thing about you as an actress. And I guess if you are at the top of your acting game, this is what we should expect. But I still find it so amazing that you play Albert Knobs. And then going back to what I said at the beginning, you pay Patty Hughes, (laughs) who is so frightening. On every level. And my producer, Joe, who's sitting next to me, has seen damages as well, and he felt the same way, um, which is just incredible. It's such a testament to your acting ability that you can bring us so deeply into a role and then scare the living hell out of us on the other side. <laughs> Tell me about damages, just because I am such a huge fan of that show. What was it like to go from, I mean, for so many years, film had been your thing, and I know you had gone into TV, but this was really, yeah. this was next level. Yeah, that was, uh, I'd never done a series. I had done one season on The Shield, Mm -hmm. and that kind of dipped my toe in the water. 
And then FX came back and, and told me about damages. And it was undeniable. It was one of the best scripts I'd ever read for that pilot. It was really, really good. I remember I asked my great friend, Ann Roth, who was a magnificent costume designer, to please read it because Annie has always such amazing insight on stuff. And she said, if you don't do this, you're, you're nuts. <laughs> um, and they didn't have a, a script at the time. I said, come back with something on the page. And so they came back with that. And I just said, okay, you know, why not? I'd always had huge respect for Helen Mirren, who did Prime Suspect way back, and yeah. Judy Dench. They'd all done. Judy Dench did a sitcom. I mean, you yeah. just do it all, right? And when people would say, why are you going into television? Because television was very much the poor cousin to film. And I right. I said, well, it's beautifully written, and, and I respect the audience that TV can, can elicit, and why not? I mean, it's yeah. great writing. So I jumped and it was in. Amazing. Yeah. Such an amazing performance. I didn't want it to end, although I kind of did because I couldn't sleep while I was watching it. <laughs> it, it would just get I, yeah. into my psyche. And then at 3 a.m. I'd wake up and be like, oh, my God, is Patty Houston here with me? Uh, the first episode, I think, had uh, a moment of epiphany when I realized that her whole modus operandi was to keep people off balance. That yeah. they, it, sometimes they didn't know if she was telling the truth or not. Yeah. And that was a great, and also she never lost her cool. That was the scariest part. Yeah. I read something about, it, it was almost like if Glenn Close is quiet in a, in a film, <laughs> then you know you're in trouble. <laughs> I think I was actually, when I walked into that bring change to mind thing, I was worried about the same thing. Oh, is Glenn Close being quiet? Am I supposed to be worried now? <laughs> yeah, she's very, um, she, she, that, that the great scene where she screams when she fires her, number two in the car yes. I, I in that scene i thought i'm gonna scare the crew with this one <laughs> but other I know, than they, that she would only show her emotion if she was alone yeah and yeah. It's, it's those moments that were very very powerful as very the actor powerful. that, that uh, you know it's a kind of a secret between you and the audience that the other characters in the in the piece don't know about and it gives you kind of even more power yeah so I met you, as I said, because of Bring Change to Mind. And I would love to talk more about this on two levels. First and foremost, going back to what I said about Albert Knobs and always being first to the conversation, but also because this is a deeply personal story for you. Mm -hmm. So tell us about Bring Change to Mind and how Bring Change to Mind came about and what it has meant for you. Yeah. So before the advent of the cell phone. Uh, <laughs> my family, because we had had this strange history and my parents were out of the country for many years and then went to a very hard to get place in Wyoming, we, we really didn't, you either wrote a letter or you picked up the phone, right? I wasn't in the habit of doing either. I mean, it's actually kind of shocking when I think about it. So I didn't really know what my siblings were going through. We would gather at mom and dad's sometimes in the summer, hopefully over Christmas. Um, because you were living in New York and they were living yeah, elsewhere? Yeah. Okay. And it was at one of those gatherings um, that my sister Jess, my younger sister Jessie, who lives just across the yard from me here, came up to me and said, I need your help because I can't stop thinking about killing myself. 
I never in a million years would have expected that. I had no idea of what her struggle was. She always had been considered the wild one. She left school when she was sent to live with my sister Tina in Pacific Palisades, and she walked out at, I think it was 10th grade, never Mm. went back. She really fell through the cracks. Mm. My mom and I helped her to go to uh, a hospital where she stayed there for, I think, five months, and she was diagnosed finally, properly, with bipolar disorder. Mm-hmm. She had been diagnosed with, I think, depression before that and given the wrong meds. or, And she also had been abusing drugs and alcohol, but luckily she had gotten sober. She had kids. She had gotten sober before the bipolar diagnosis because you can't really have a proper diagnosis if you're still abusing. So, And I didn't even know that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it was a real shock. Her son... Kaylin, who lives maybe eight miles from here, he had had a psychotic break when he was 19, and he had been diagnosed, been two years in the hospital and diagnosed with schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. And the family kind of, um, we didn't know anything. We had no vocabulary for mental illness. Um, We didn't really understand it. It's hard to kind of accept that that's happening in your family. Mm -hmm. So he had already gone through this, uh, and then Jesse had this, It wasn't the same thing as a psychotic break, but she had this meltdown where she realized that she really needed help. So the two of them eventually came to me and said, will you help us because they had already discovered or experienced the fact that stigma around mental illness can be just as bad as the illness itself that you're trying desperately to learn how to manage because it's a chronic illness, right? Yeah. So I said, yes, but... I won't do it without you. And I remember I asked them, are you willing to out yourself as living with a mental illness, with a serious mental illness on a national platform? They said yes. And we did not know what we were getting into. We had no clue. I thought because of my profession that we would be doing these PSAs, public service announcement. And the first thing that we did, we raised over... Gosh, it was over $500,000 to shoot our first PSA in Grand Central Station. And it's still, to this day, I think the most effective PSA that Bring Change to Mind has done. And they both are part of it. It was very noisy. It was very, very hot. Kalen still was wearing dark glasses a lot because whenever he got frightened, you know, he would put on dark glasses because it helped him kind of separate himself from people's eyes and everything. And Jessie had her little dog snits that she would (laughs) cling to. Um, But they got through it. And Jessie even had a line. And Ron Howard, who directed this uh, PSA, was so wonderful with Jess and really nurtured her through that line, which was a totally new experience for her. So we did that. And I had an amazing group of people around me to start this. I had spent a lot of time looking at various organizations because I know how important a company is when you're an actor. I wanted to be working with people who I really, really liked and respected. And Mm -hmm. I ended up going into Fountain House, which is in New York. It's an amazing organization. It's over in the West 40s. It's like a clubhouse situation where people who are living with mental illness run the club and they have all these different Mm -hmm. activities. 
And so I went in there to volunteer. I volunteered in the kitchen. I volunteered in the newspaper. And I volunteered in the horticulture because I wanted to check my own stigma, my own, if I had stigma. And, you know, you walk into it and it was a lovely place. It looks like a college gathering place kind of and you'd see people who obviously had come off the street and you think oh my god look at those people Mm -hmm. in this nice place and I thought what are you saying (laughs) you know so I I had to check myself Uh, and I wanted to work uh, and to look in the face and to talk to people that I was hoping to advocate you know be an advocate for and that was and then the people who helped me start Bring Change to Mind all had their own organizations so eventually and Mm -hmm. then I had to you know I have to have a board? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's almost like you fall into it. But it really, the, the part that is so interesting about this is this was so many years before, again, in the national conversation right now, I think COVID accelerated this to the yeah. nth degree. But I remember even when I met you, it was still kind of early days in this conversation about destigmatizing mental health. And I kept thinking to myself, It's so, again, not to use the word brave again, but it was very brave of you and your family to have these conversations. You know, the PSAs that you're putting out, your sister and your nephew are standing there saying, I'm schizophrenic, I'm bipolar. Those weren't words that people threw around at all at that time. They weren't words that people were comfortable hearing. No, especially schizophrenia. They're scary. They're scary words. The thing is, you just said, and this is interesting, you just said he was schizophrenic, but you learned to not say that because you are not your illness. Mm -hmm. You are not cancer. Interesting. You know, you are not pneumonia. So you live with, you know, I've learned to say she lives with bipolar disorder. He lives with schizophrenia because that's not who they are. They're somebody who's trying to manage that. Yeah. When we think about Bring Change to Mind as it continues to move forward, what comes next? What is going to be happening with Bring Change to Mind? I know the last time I was speaking with the team, it was all about getting information into the hands of college students and high school students mm-hmm. about how mm-hmm. to help them destigmatize. What are you working on as you move forward? We, um, we are in, by now, 460 high school clubs across the country. And amazing. I always wanted to have whatever we did have a scientific base to it that you could actually test to see if it was effective. And we have kept to that. And I sat in on a meeting of our very, very distinguished scientific advisory board, and they continually are measuring and testing. And these clubs are very, very effective in that they establish in a high school a stigma-free zone where kids feel that they can talk about whatever it is they're dealing with and they know how to talk to each other they just need to have the place um, and the the knowledge that they can learn how to be vigilant for each other they can learn about what it is these various uh, whether it's depression or anxiety or or suicidal ideation, or or bipolar, whatever it is, they learn about that, and um, yeah. they can then grow the community from their club out into the high school, and it's been um, incredibly effective. And the kids are so impressive. We always have some of them come to our fundraisers that we call Revels and Revelations, and you've been very much, very much a part of 
many other ones that we've had in New Fleecing York. Fleecing your guests for money for bringing yeah, change to mind. Right, my favorite thing to do. Which is the hardest <laughs> thing in the world to do. <laughs> You're my so favorite part brave. of the night. Talk about being brave. <laughs> <laughs> that takes real bravery. But no, it's very exciting. And I think it's so needed. Um, so needed. So, so needed. Yeah. For anyone who's listening who has someone in their life who needs help or needs help, I'll be sure to put in the show notes mm-hmm. information about Bring Change to Mind so that you can find that resource if you do need it. Yeah. So Glenn, as we wrap up this interview, which makes me so sad because I love talking to you so much, mm-hmm. where do we find you? What's happening next? There's Bring Change to Mind, but what can we expect from you? Well, I worked solidly from June to December this past year. I was in a movie, a Lee Daniels movie, playing a white grandmother in a mixed race family. Andre Day was my daughter. It's called The Deliverance, and I'm very excited about that. I don't, I'm not sure when it's coming out, but that's one thing. And then Todd, or he, um, Adam Kessler, who was the head writer on Damages, had a little part, but a very interesting part in an amazing series that he has created about Dior and Chanel between Ooh. the wars, between the world wars. So I went over to Paris and was in two of the episodes, but it was fascinating. And that experience taught me for the first time how, I mean, it sounds ridiculous because couture is such a part of our, you know, you go on Instagram and it's all about who's wearing what. But I have always thought it was frivolous, actually. It's probably my Yankee roots, (laughs) that it was for the privileged, you know. But it's the first time um, kind of diving into that story or being just a small part of it that I realized what an art form it is that it's you know it's a true art form and it's ridiculous for me to say because it's so obvious but I never really kind of understood it and then I ended the year playing Cameron Diaz's British MI6 mother in a kind of spy caper that she and Jamie Foxx are doing so I went to London to do that and Cameron came out of retirement to do it and then she was so lovely her husband and her little girl and Jamie was great. So that was kind of a fun way to end the year. If that right there doesn't really sum up your entire career, three completely different parts <laughs> in different parts of the world playing three completely different people. I mean, what an incredible woman you are, Glenn. Thank you so much for spending your time talking to me about all of these amazing topics, but also about you, because I find you to be such an inspiration, someone who's really lived their life the way that she chose and wanted to live her life. So I would challenge all of our listeners out there with this one question. What are you doing to live the life that you want to do? And if you need inspiration, you can look no further than Glenn Close. Glenn, thank you for being here. I would like to thank Rockefeller Center and Newsstand Studio for having me in this amazing podcast booth and to Joe, our producer, who puts up with everything that we do over the course of the show. I'm Lydia Finette. Please follow along on LydiaFinette.com or on Instagram at Lydia Finette. And I can't wait to be back with you again next week with an amazing guest. Thank you, Lydia. <laughs>